Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Attention, attention. Uh, Hello there, We Have Ways of Making You Talk listeners. You are listening to another one of our We Have Ways of Making You Chalk specials to mark the week of the Chalk Valley History Festival. Um, Normally hosted in a bucolic bliss, the Chalk Valley in beautiful wheelchair. Um, uh, And of course, the Chalk Valley History Festival. And by the way, we're talking to Nora Krug in a minute. um, uh, And uh, it's absolutely... um, fantastically interesting the conversation we have coming up for you and timely which is unlike us normally we'd rather be arguing about which marcus spitfire is better um uh, now james the chalk valley history festival which is um which is your baby really isn't it well it's, it's partly or my are baby, you the midwife yeah. yeah no it's partly my baby so so um uh, back in in the late noughties i was very heavily involved in building a new cricket ground um, for the Chalk Valley Cricket Club. <laughs> of course you were. And uh, we, we did most of it. We didn't have a pavilion. We borrowed a hospitality tent from the Rose Bowl. That was our temporary pavilion. And we thought, well, how are we going to raise some money? So um, I I went to James Hennage, who I knew, who used to run Ottaker's book chain, which you may remember. Yeah. Yes. Um, and, yeah. I, and, and I said to Hennage, um, listen, what, what about doing an arts festival to raise some money for our kind of pavilion fund? And he said, I think that's a great idea, but let's not do an arts festival. Everyone's doing that. No one's really doing any history festivals. You know, you're a history story and I love my history um why don't we do a history festival and I said you know what that is a really really good idea so we sat down and uh, we actually had the first one in 2011 was on the cricket ground and we had 12 events of which the brilliant legendary Michael Wood was one of the first 12 speakers um and um and it went down really really well and afterwards um James and I both thought Let's let's try and sort of take it up a notch. <laughs> I well, hold I mean, on before before you do take it up a notch. Did you manage to raise enough money for the pavilion? Yes, yes, we did. Yes, so we got. We got so the we, money so you it. didn't need to. So you didn't need to do it again. No, we didn't need to do it again. We, we could have just just quit. But everyone really liked it, and it was fun to do. And <laughs> and, and James particularly was very keen on expanding it in a big way, and um, and. and and I remember having this meeting with everyone was volunteers at that stage, and everyone. And I remember sitting around the table saying, "Look, I don't want anyone to laugh, but I really think we should have some living history." And everyone looked at me as though I was absolutely mad. And I said, "You know, reenactors, people dressing up and stuff." And everyone just burst out laughing. Said, "You know, don't be such an idiot." I said, "No, bear with me. We've got to do it. We've got to do it." And we found some amazing people. So one of the big things that we did in 2012 was introduce this huge camp of of, of living historians, and it was brilliant. But after that second year, we then suddenly thought, well, actually, we, re- we really are on something. It was a great success the second year. We thought, let's really take it up another notch, but let's make something worthwhile. Let's actually stand for something. Let, you know, let's agree. We're not going to get rich on this, but let's, let's set up a trust. And, and what is that trust? That trust is there to further the understanding, enjoyment and excitement of history amongst all ages, all age groups, but particularly youngsters, school kids. And so suddenly a big part of that then became the Chalk Valley History Festival for schools, which is an absolute integral part of the festival and, and also trying to get more and more state schools. So we, we, we fund a lot of that. Um, we get grants in to help for it. It's a massive 
um, it, it runs a massive loss leader for us. But it's it's really so, really so, important. So the festival's composition is what is the first three four days of all schools. Is that yeah? Right? So what we have is we have a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday now are um, schools festival, and we have um, years uh, six, seven, eight. On, on two days and we have years 10 and 12 so that is pre-GCSE and pre-A level come so and lots of living history lots of you know big big proper academics and big household names come and do talk for kids and we get about 3,000 kids you know coming from all over some in England and some from further afield as well we actually had a, a schools coming from, from somewhere like Kenya or something this year were due to come I mean somewhere really really weird um, but, but definitely overseas and um it's a big part of what we do. So, you know, we get you know, all the all the profits from the festival all get ploughed back into the Chalk Valley History Trust. And, and you know, we all take it quite seriously, really. Um, and that's the big tragedy of this year that we had this amazing festival lined up. So you're not you're not building a cricket stadium. then. No, we're not going to build a cricket stadium. It's not going to be the new Rose Bowl. <laughs> but, you know, one of the things that so last year, I remember, do you remember you and I were in, in um, up in um, in Edinburgh? You were doing your uh, pub landlord. We'd had that one. We have ways gig. Uh, and uh, I I came to see you perform with a few other guys and we were in that Spiegel tent. So we had that Spiegel tent ready for the, for this year. You know, we booked it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that you know, would, it would have been I mean, great. That, that, was, that was genuine. That was a, a genuinely exciting addition, I thought, because uh, one of the, I mean, the thing is, the thing, if you've not been, I've been, I've been to three or four now. It, a, it's very convivial. It's the, it's one of the great things about the, the festival is it's it's somewhere where you can sit and sup a pint of of, of something yep. probably named after a fighter aircraft in the Second World War. Well, we have Panzer Pils, we've had Dan Buster. Well, there we are. Okay. The, uh, there you go. See, so I'm, uh, whatever, right? So it's very convivial, and also there is that thing of what's on in this tent now. Oh, here's a lecture about because um, I, I saw Adam Rutherford uh, two three years ago, two years ago talking about. Danny Dyer's "Who Do You Think You Are" and about the genetic sort of yes. singularity points yeah, in. Yeah. In in here in uh, uh, in uh, ancestry in Europe and the, and then in, in 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 the British Isles and all that sort of stuff, absolutely fascinating. And then the next minute, I mean, a thing about um, oh gosh, it was about was it about the Rump Parliament? Like it was that terribly posh historian, Civil War historian, you had talking about something marvelously posh and just yeah, yeah. Yeah, the absolutely ghastly. The Noble Revolt what, is what he calls it. That, that's it. Yes, 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 yes. That's right. Yes, the start of the Civil War is a noble it's, 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 revolt. It's the best the Civil War pun ever. Yeah, and uh, and all that sort of stuff, uh, and then also, you know, uh, uh, Second World War stuff and all that sort of thing. And and what what? But 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 I mean, it's a beautiful setting. And I I think I've only been one year when it's absolutely chucked. Down. It hoofed it in twenty sixteen in, in twenty sixteen, which was the hundredth anniversary of the Somme. We built this. We built. <laughs> it's just so awful. We built this absolutely amazing bit of first world war trench so much so that there was even a bit where we did a, an exercise under purely under starlight and moonlight to actually construct a bit of trench wall to see what it was like and how it compared when you did it properly in daylight with with no jerry's firing maxim guns at you uh, and we had this thing where if you were seen so we had people kind of in no man the other side of no man's land and if you were seen they go bang you're dead you know, there'd be a sort of pretending to be a German sniper. Like and a marshal. Really, yeah, it was really, really tense. I can't tell you. And you couldn't make any noise whatsoever. <laughs> so you couldn't hammer anything in or anything. You had to sort of screw it. Yeah. But the half, anyway, this bit of trench was, it was so good. It was, it was 
perfect in every single way to the proportions, the dimensions, everything about it, the construction techniques, all of it, lots of different construction techniques, all showcased in this one bit of very complicated network of trench. <laughs> About three days before the festival, health and it safety executive down. turn up and go, oh, no. no one is allowed in that. No. No one. Um, and, and so that was really depressing. So we then had to pretend you were on a cook's tour and it was 1919 and you were visiting the, 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 the trench. So you could only walk around the top, but with lots of roped off bits. And, you know, God, it was nauseating. That works. Uh, well, sort of it did. It didn't work anything like as well it was going to. But, but that, but it poured and poured and poured and poured. So it was, it was kind of, it was ironic that it was the Somme anniversary, which of course was for the most part, uh, fought out in baked dry soil and, and blazing sunshine when actual fact it should have been 2017 and Passchendaele because it was it was freaking miserable <laughs> now um next year would would have been the 10th what are you are you going to do well I think it still will be the 10th because we, we, we've had a leap year uh, enforced leap year this year so I think it will still be and the great thing about the 10th anniversary is in um you know the historical symbol for 10 is x so you can have lots of gags with x marks a spot and all the rest of it um and an x on the front cover and and of the program and everything i mean i don't know what form it will look like because it depends how much money we managed to raise for it because we undercut every ticket by about 50 percent. you know that's what um yes that, that's what we or rather we is that the right phrase we, we pay subsidize we subsidize that's we subsidize exactly right. um but you know my ambition for it has always been and, and the ambition of the, of the of the team behind it and i'm you know i'm 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 one one of the cogs in it there's lots of people involved um is to make it a festival of history, not a literary history festival with add-ons. And I've really felt that this year, above all other years, was the year that we'd really, really nailed it. So it's a shame. Well, we had live music every night and, you know, massive party on Saturday and planes back and Lancaster's booked and all that kind of stuff, as well as Well, next year, next year, James. And, next th- year. and this, is, this, of course, we're filling the gap here. Yes. Yeah, so uh, we have keep, ways keep of making you up. chalk. That's the idea. Exactly. Yeah, our pun-filled uh, substitute for... <laughs> The Chalk Valley <laughs> I can't anyway. believe it took us this long to come up with it. Anyway, we are now going to talk to Nora Krug, um, a German Who is author, just illustrator, and, uh, um, well, I mean, in, in the German style, although part of the book is arguing that people say, oh, that's very German, all that sort of thing, getting to grips with things philosophically um, and what it, what it means to be a German. Um, thanks for listening. Enjoy this podcast. Hello there, uh, listeners to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. This is another We Have Ways of Making You Chalk, Chalk Valley History Festival uh, special, um, uh, where we're talking to people a little, well, in this case, not actually. We have been talking to people outside our normal Second World War remit, but I think we're going to inevitably end up talking about this subject with our with our today's guest. And I am absolutely delighted to say... We're talking to uh, Nora Krug, who's in uh, in in New York, um, as I think our furthest foray abroad ever, as well. So um, thank you, for, thank you for joining us, Nora. Thanks for having me. Now, um, uh, uh, people who don't know, I suppose, um, or people who do, the, the the I suppose the the book we're drawn to to talk about is is Heimat, the the book you wrote. Is, it's a is it a couple of years old? Uh, Two three years it first old. First came out in two thousand eighteen. Right. Okay. Um, and for those that don't know, what, well, I mean, best if you summarise it rather than I, 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 I attempt to do so. 
Well, uh, I'm German. I grew up in Germany and then later moved to uh, the UK and to America to study. And this book is, uh, in a way, uh, an inner return uh, for me because um, it's a uh, search into what my uh, German family did or didn't do under the Nazi regime, uh, which I had no idea about before I embarked on research, uh, researching this book. Um, and it's also a search for German identity and the question of, um, you know, what it means to be German today. Um, and, you, and, you've, and you've also written Belonging, haven't you, which is a German reckons with history and home, which is all about your investigation into your grandfather, Willy. And again, it's, you know, I love I loved how you sort of, I mean, for those who don't know these books, I mean, you're, you're in for a massive treat because this is not your ordinary book. These are illustrated, they have got photographs, they've got handwriting in them. They're kind of sort of put together like a, almost like a kind of personal scrapbook. And, and they're just beautiful. I mean, they really are absolutely beautifully done. And I suppose with, 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 uh, with, with belonging, that, that, that kind of start began in America, didn't it? When you were suddenly talking to a complete stranger and explaining that you were German and so on. Yes, um, so uh, the book begins with a with a scene uh, where I meet an elderly woman on a rooftop in New York. Um, that was shortly after I had arrived from Germany. And um, it turned out she was a Holocaust survivor. She immediately recognized my accent and knew that I am German. And she told me a very harrowing story of how she survived the concentration camp because um, a very brutal female concentration guard saved her from the gas chamber 16 times at the last moment. And she was a young teenager that, at that point. And um, the way she told me the story was just very frank, but uh, there wasn't a sense of reproachfulness towards me. Um, of course, I felt utterly guilty, which is a feeling that always set in and still continues to, uh, to set in when I speak to a survivor, for instance, or family members of former survivors. Um, because I think I grew up with this uh, shared collective sense of of shame around the Holocaust as a German of my generation. Um, but somehow this encounter, which was really unexpected, propelled me uh, to... It was one of the reasons for why I began to reflect uh, more deeply on my on my heritage, because I realized that even though we had learned so much in school about the subject, I mean, every detail almost that there was to to know about that time, um, we somehow avoided asking each other about uh, the more personal questions, you know, what happened in each other's families, what each other's grandparents did or didn't do. Um, and I realized at that moment that I had no idea uh, about, you know, the war on that personal level. And so meeting this woman somehow brought that out in me. And that's also why I made it the first narrative in the book. In a way, I don't want to talk too too much about what what you then un, uh, 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 um, discover in the book because I want I'd much rather people read it than we than we preceded it. But it it's I mean the the, the thing is is uh, in this country in the UK there is a, there is there are several sort of uh, deep cultural views of, of 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 Germany and one of them one of them I mean one of the things that struck me in the book is you mentioned the Brit you mentioned British the British or the English once. When you're at a party and you hear someone say Heil Hitler, and and 
Whereas one of the things in this country is we are terribly hung up on the Germans in our popular culture, in our political culture, in our serious culture. And yet you, you, it seems as though the British aren't in the, in the mix at all in your consideration of what it means to be German. Whereas they're very much in our, our self-assessment in this country. Germany looms large. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, when I lived in England for three years, I studied in Liverpool uh, after graduating from high school. And I did encounter a lot of um, problematic, you know, sentiments towards German culture at the time. I think it's probably changed uh, in, in the past 20 years a little bit. But I do know that, uh, you know, Germany um, is, 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 you know, as you say, probably a, a very big component in the political consciousness uh, in, you know, people's minds in the UK. Um, but in the book, I, I decided to really focus on my experience now. Um, so that's why I primarily focused on Germany and the US where I've been living for 17 years. And um, because the book, I didn't want the book to only be about the past. I didn't want it to be only about what my grandparents did or didn't do. But I also wanted to explore how these things made me feel and what their actions or inactions um, mean to me today. Because I think that's, uh, I think one of the things I learned from writing the book and researching the, the book was how deeply um, impacted we are by our history. I mean, it's it's evident, but um, it's not something you really think about in everyday life so much as um, that you are history, that history is deeply embedded in, you know, almost every action you take, uh, you know, in, in your understanding of the world, because of course, you're impacted by the political landscape of your country and uh, your country's viewpoint, which is, again, uh, based in history. So um, I realized that, of course, I mean, you know, this very well, but uh, history is, um, is alive. And it's, uh, it's, it's part of who we are every day, every day. And so um, I, I wanted to reflect as much on what this means to me as a German living in America today, as what it meant to my grandfather living in Germany under the Nazi regime. So have there been phases of um, historical sort of digestion of the of uh, the, the Nazi past of Germany? Uh, you, you, you're, you're talking about your grand your grandfather principally in the book. You go back to find out what what his generation did. What what have been the what have been the sort of stages of 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 uh, di historical digestion of Germany's past? Do you think in Germany you mean? Yeah, in Germany. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, right after the war, there was a lot of denial. Um, I mean, it was in a very in a way a very um, dark decade, the nineteen fifties, because Germans did not at all acknowledge or reflect on what um, had happened in their country and what they had done actively by either actively supporting the Nazis or being passive about the Nazis' actions. I mean, there was a German resistance, but um, compared to the, you know, to the, I mean, when you look at the numbers, it was, you know, just a small population, obviously, who resisted. Um, but uh, so the 50s was, um, in, in Germany was in a way in a state of denial and also early 60s. And then, you know, 68 and all the, the other... Um, social changes that happened as well in other countries. But in Germany, those changes were also very, very strongly connected to um, our uh, reflection on our recent past. I think that's probably where Germany differed from 
the revolutionary spirit of other countries of that time is that um, it was uh, it, it was also about you know facing our Nazi past and then 60s, 70s, and 80s was a, was a, a very intensive um, phase of of trying to to reckon with what we had done. Um, and at that point, a lot of you know politicians and lawyers and judges and uh, teachers were still of that old Nazi uh, mindset, um, and that was what a lot of Ger young Germans protested against at the time. And then, um, yeah, it. Uh, I think the education on the subject changed entirely in school. I mean, what my parents learned about the Holocaust in school is entirely different from what I learned, obviously. Um, is it? In what, in what way? Well, my father, I mean, again, it depended on which state you grew up in and which, you know, whether you came from a village or from a town and who your teachers were. If you had a young teacher, you were more likely to talk about these subjects than if it were an older teacher. So um, my, uh, my father, who came from a village, um, didn't learn anything about the Holocaust. He was born in 1946 and nobody ever talked about Jewish life in the village, even though every single person in the village had known Jewish people. I mean, they were neighbors, they were colleagues, they were friends, but they were just, they had basically been, I mean, they, they had d disappeared from, from the, yeah, and from the narrative too, and from the collective memory almost. So he knew nothing, uh, neither on, on the collective level about German Germany's history, um, and he didn't know anything about his, his village's history uh, under the regime. And my mother had a young teacher. She also was born in 1946, but she grew up in a city and she did learn about the Holocaust, but not in detail. And uh, she told me the first time she ever actually saw pictures of the camps was when she took her, her parents rented an apartment, uh, rented out an apartment to a student who was very much on the on the on the left spectrum politically and in his garbage uh, bin she found a magazine um that uh, contained an article about the holocaust with pictures from the camps and that's how she first encountered these photographs um uh, as opposed to my generation again this is southwest germany uh, it, it depends on on so many uh, aspects but um you know east germans grew up with a very different narrative but um where I grew up, uh, we, uh, yeah, it was a, a huge, huge subject um, in school to to a degree where some students actually felt uh, tired of learning about it. Which um, I think there there was a there was a problem with how it was taught, because not enough of a connection was made to the present. You know, I think if students hadn't simply learned uh, the uh, the history, but also thought about how they can apply what they learned from that history to today's immigration politics or whatever, I think um, there would have been a deeper understanding and appreciation. But I think there was a sense of tiredness because it was so extensive and we visited, I think I remember visiting about three concentration camp museums um, alone. So. Uh, yeah, like school trips we took to different countries, uh, speaking to survivors, and all of that was very, very important. I would not want to miss any of that. I think, actually, there was a debate in Germany recently about whether these school visits should um, be mandatory or continue to be mandatory or not. And I definitely think they should, personally, um, because I think you learn very differently about history when you go to the place where it happened. I mean, the physical environment 
teaches you so much um the actual science well it's a line that it's a line that al and i talk about a lot is the importance of walking the ground because it doesn't matter whether you've seen photographs a photograph is still a, a two-dimensional thing yeah. um it doesn't matter whether you've seen film footage that's still two-dimensional as well only when you actually go somewhere can you can you see how it fits you, you can you really get that sense of scale i mean there, i mean listen you know we're, like you i've been to a number of these camps and and there is even if you didn't know what had happened there i i i would defy anyone to argue that you wouldn't feel oppressed just yeah. standing in the middle of it there is something about sachsenhausen or theresienstadt or of course auschwitz where you're where you're there in the middle of it and and you just feel this awful lead weight kind of sort of heaving down on your shoulders uh, and, and it is oppressive and it's dark and it's and it, and it just makes you feel awful and and you would you just don't get that in the same way from not being there you know from just seeing it on a film yeah. i don't think or seeing a photograph that's why it's also so important to preserve those sites and it's tragic in countries like rwanda where you know at the beginning there were, weren't enough funds to preserve evidence of the atrocities that you know physical evidence three-dimensional evidence of the atrocities committed and uh it's 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 just such an important way of commemorating the past now, um, we, I mean, we're talking about a, 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 um, oppression here, and I, it's, I find it a, a sight being oppressive. Um, it's interesting, Nora, you've been saying we when you talk about German history and what we did in Germany. And it wasn't you, one could argue. It's nothing to do with you, Nora. It's not your generation. Um, and the uh, sins of the fathers and the sins of the grandfathers. I find it very interesting that... He, uh, and, it, and, of course, it keys back to what you said before about how... We carry our history with us, whoever we are, wherever we are. Do you, do you, do you, is there a way of it not, of, of not saying we about this now? Because it's a lot, also it's a long time ago, it's the other way. It's a long time ago and it wasn't, it wasn't you, if you see, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I think um, it's something I thought about a lot when I wrote the book, because I think there's always a, a collective experience, a collective memory um, and a collective sense of responsibility. And then there's also a personal one. And I think both are equally important. Um, of course, it doesn't make sense to feel ashamed to a degree where you're paralyzed. And that's what I felt growing up. And that was, that was wrong because I think that actually stops you from taking true responsibility. Um, but I do think that's where you know, we, there's a difference between um, shame and responsibility. And I think the ultimate goal would be to replace the term shame with responsibility, meaning that you have to take action today as a German based on, on what happened in our past. And that's really true for any country. It's not not just a, a German thing. Um, but the other thing is that uh, when I wrote the book, I realized that a lot of the commemoration and acknowledging of the terrible acts that happened in our past that happened in Germany happened on a collective level, on an institutional level. Again, it's very important that it happens on a, a collective level. I mean, that's what you see in, in the United States at the moment is that that is not even happening. You know, institutions are only now beginning to admit to the fact that they have not been inclusive. Um, and so I but in Germany that that was what Germans were very good at. They they remembered collectively, they 
um, you know, there was a collective effort. But um, but I think what hasn't happened enough is the the individual one. And uh, I think you can also hide be, uh, behind the collective efforts, you know, because it can make you feel like, oh, your country is already doing enough to commemorate. Why do you have to go to the archive and ask questions about your own family? But I think that's equally important. I think going back to your own roots, finding out who your family was, uh, is is just as important. And it, I think it's the real act of taking responsibility because it's it's taking responsibility for yourself rather than for a collective bigger bigger group. And again, that's also what should happen in the US is that, you know, I think few people probably do go to archives to research their family's involvement in, in slavery, for instance, um, uh, or, you know, colonial histories in Europe are not uh, looked at from a, from this personal angle enough. And I think, uh, yeah, I think both both well, the, angles are important. The, because the collective is, of course, made up of individuals in the end. So, yeah. uh, uh, the, 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 you know, the only way you'll ever change the movement of a body is the individuals doing so. Yeah. I mean, I made a, I made a program um, a couple of years ago, uh, and it was, a, it was meant to be a light program uh, called Why Does Everyone Hate the English? And we went to Scotland and Wales and Ireland and, and, uh, and France and Germany. And the program in France was, was just some knockabout fun. And there was no way we were ever, there was nothing, nothing to get to argue about. The programme in Scotland, some of it you sort of thought, well, OK, but this feels to me like there's some gro groping around for grievance in the 14th century. The Irish programme was very, 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 very difficult to, to, to do because and, and, and not even the, the, the Great Famine notwithstanding, but the events in the Civil War in the, in, uh, after the First World War. And there's a there was an event in um, at Croke Park, which is a sports stadium where British auxiliaries in the you know working for the British government went into the sports stadium and opened fire on the crowd and on a match that was in progress. And we went there to talk about and it was, and it's a different stadium, but you completely felt you, you completely and I felt I felt this collective individual responsibility, exactly the same thing you're talking about, and and again. In the, this country has an extremely complex uh, uh, colonial um, history, and even with its next door neighbours in the which is all coming back to the fore at the moment. And, uh, and after all, I mean, what, what, one argument um, is that what one argument is what the Nazis were trying to do was create colonies within Europe and colonise Europe. And of course, you didn't do that. You could do that in Africa. And you could do that in the Americas, or as far away as possible. You didn't do it to Europeans. Is that was, Mussolini even said that to Hitler? You can't do it in Europe. You know those are the rules, and we and we did it in Ireland. We and here I am saying we now in the same way about the about the British, the English, and it, I think finding those finding those connections and 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 accepting them, I think, is really 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 important. Finding the connections, accepting them, but also but, but learning from them. And you know, people people sort of you know always trot out this line about history repeating itself. And you know, and I always say history doesn't repeat itself, but patterns of human behaviour do. And and so this is where the warnings from history have to be taken into account. You know, the certain sort of you know when you have a major economic crisis, you know, political and social disruption inevitably follows. It, it, you know, as as much as kind of, sort of night follows day, it, you see it all, all the time. Um, and the lessons from the 1930s are, are kind of all there to be seen right now. I mean, you know, we've, we've, we've just been sort of getting over the reckoning of 2008 crash. And now we're facing another one because of COVID-19. Plus kind of, 
you know, exacerbated by this sort of growth of tribalism. You know, and, and the lessons from history, the lessons from the late 1920s and early 1930s and the rise of the Nazis, for example, or fascism, or whatever it might be, those lessons are, are potent and they are there to be a, a, as a warning. And I think, you know, one of the great benefits of studying history is is so that you can make sense of the present and prepare for the for the future. And I think that's where the collective responsibility comes. It's about making sure that you are aware of that history so that when those similar patterns emerge again, you can make sure that the mistakes that were made before don't get made. And, you know, yeah. that, that's what's all a bit scary at the moment because it doesn't feel like those lessons are being particularly learned. Yeah, as you say, p patterns, I think, is a good word because um, I think it's important to recognize them and also language is a big part in, in that as well. Listening to how things are said because violence always uh, begins with language. I mean, when you read Mein Kampf, that's that's evident. Um, and I think that's that's the beginning of, of things that we need to listen out for. And, uh, for instance, the far uh, right-wing uh, party, um, you know, AFD in Germany is is using similar terms to describe political opponents that were used in the past in Germany. Um, in Rwanda during the genocide, the uh, the Tutsis were described as cockroaches on the radio, so that uh, you know incited violence. Um, and I think it's it's very important. Um, I I don't know if you know um, the historian Timothy Snyder's book on tyranny. 20 lessons from the 20th century and that's exactly what it's about it's about uh, looking at 20th century European history and trying to find out uh, to figure out what we can do um, today in order to help uh, you know prevent the same mistakes from happening again and I'm I'm working on an illustrated edition of that book at the moment with Timothy which is exciting because um, because it's a you know it's a it's a continuation of, of my other book in a way uh, that, uh, you know, just, you know, it's it's so evident, but that, that, that the past and the present are basically one. They're bo both connected and we need to understand the ways in which they're connected. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. 
In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Chalk. We are talking to Nora Krug in New York. Nora, can I kind of sort of bore, bore back to your own personal story, though? But I mean, you know, when you're, you know, as a German, knowing there's this, this sort of great elephant in the room uh, in your history, which is the war, the Nazi period, the, those 12 years, you know, when you start kind of looking into your, your own personal story and your grandfather's story, you know, what, there must be a sort of pretty big sense of trepidation isn't there of, about what you're about to un, unpeel what you're about to unlayer um well i always knew that my grand neither of my grandparents was a major nazi figure because i think that is something you couldn't get around as a german growing up in my generation because the names of the major nazis uh that were you know doing terrible things were basically um in you know known so i think you would have known if i would have already known long before that uh, something fishy had been going on so i always knew he was in the category that's more described as the uh, the follower midläufer category which is the kind of the gray zone uh, i think most germans after the war were ranked into that category of followers um, and at first I thought, well, is there really a story in that? Because he was just, in quotation marks, a follower. And then as I did more research and I found a U.S. military file in my uh, hometown's archive about him, every German after the war had to, in the U.S. sector, had to fill out uh, a form about what they had been up to under the Nazi regime. So I found my grandfather's file there that nobody in my family had seen before, um, of course, I felt nervous, but then I also realized that it's exactly that group uh, in the middle, this gray zone that we need to pay more attention to, because that is the group. That's the group that, you know, supported, supported, um, made it possible for Hitler to stay in power for as long as he did. And it's a group that we tend to overlook because we always say, oh, he was just a follower. You know, he just did what everybody else did. He had no choice. But I realize that that people, you know, people do have choices. And I think that's a very important realization for the present, too, that uh, decisions we make every day have, uh, you know, impact uh, other people's lives directly. And we have a choice. Um, and under the Nazi regime, you had choices, too. Some, you know, some people decided to, to make the wrong choices. Some people just were afraid to uh, make the right choice. Um, there are small ways in which you could have helped that would have not put your life in danger, and a lot of Germans decided not to do that. So I think it's uh, it's very important to um, to recognize that these people who are kind of uh, you know in the middle, in between the bad and the good guys, to say it in in an American way, <laughs> um, are a very important category to to examine. Because uh, there's a, I remember a bit in your book where you talk about him being a member because he is a Nazi Party member, yes. isn't he? Yes. Um, and the, the family thing is, well, he he had to join. You had to join if you wanted to keep your job, and and but no, you didn't. And plenty of people didn't. 
Uh, and so, so why would you join? And maybe there was advancement in, in your employment in joining, but there's also, it's also the thing everyone, it's the thing a lot of other people are doing. It's power, it's ambition as well. It's not to keep your job, it's possibly to advance yourself. And all that, all those, I mean, actually sort of also understandable things in, in the mix. Because this is the, I think the, 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 to really get to understand what happened in Germany or, or other countries where these things go on, is you've got to understand the drivers that make people join in as much as they hate X, what, you know, the things they hate, the, the, the things they want from the movement. It's the things they can get as well, isn't it? And what it, belonging and all those sort of things, membership and acceptance and feeling part of a and national tribalism movement, again, which, isn't it? And tribalism, which are, which are all very, which are all very powerful and, and not, not, not necessarily malignant in themselves as well. Yes. Um, I mean, I think the thing about the Nazi party that surprised me is that, uh, and correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, because you're the historians here, but um, the, um, that only 15% of uh, Germans joined the Nazi party. And my impression had always been that it was a majority. Um, so, but but then again, uh, that wasn't because people didn't want to join, but because the Nazis put a, a stop on admissions early on when they realized that uh, people mostly joined for opportunistic reasons. And I think that's what my, my, what my grandfather did. I think he joined for opportunistic reasons. There's no evidence um, uh, that he believed in Nazi ideology in any way. Um, and, uh, you know, in in the file that I found in the archive revealed the reasons for why he joined, which were uh, just related to his, I mean, just in quotation marks. It was still the wrong decision, in my opinion, but, um, you know, for, for professional reasons, uh, because of his, his company or his, uh, yeah, he owned a driving school and he, he wanted to invest in this other other driving school. Um, so I think, again, it's just much more complex than one thinks when... Um, yeah, I, I think that's why it's so important to look at individual lives and ask individual questions, um, because I think they can tell you a lot about, um, yeah, what the complexities of, of living uh, under a regime like that. Yeah, I mean, you know, no, no one is forcing you to dob someone in, are they? And no one is forcing you to be a train driver to Auschwitz. And, and, and actually, no one's forcing you to be a guard at Auschwitz. even. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, you're, you're right. There, there is an awful lot of choice in all this. I mean, what I think is interesting is is that if you are a young man coming of age during the Second World War, you have no choice about joining up the armed forces. You have to go and do your bit. And, you know, I've been fortunate enough to interview a number of German veterans, and, and some of them have been in profoundly moving conversations because it's absolutely clear that when I turn up as a sort of Mr. Neutral from a different country who's never going to, you know, they haven't got to sort of hide anything from me. So suddenly they're opening up in a way that they would never do to their family. And, and, and on several occasions, veterans have said, said, you know, I've never told anyone what I've told you. And that, that's not particularly flattering to me at all. It's just, it's just that suddenly here I am, I'm asking interesting questions. I'm, I'm ostensibly neutral and I'm not going to kind of be judgmental on them. And I've always, it's always struck me how, how much, you know, how much in the States and also obviously over here, how much we fate our veterans and, and, you know, to my, my own view, quite, you know, rightly so, but, but, you know, for those guys, you know, you're you're 19. You get called up. You've got to go to the front. You you see horrible horrible things. Your friends are being killed. You're doing it. You know, you've got a swastika on your your uniform, but you don't. You know, it means nothing to you really. Um, 
you've been doing your bit for your family, for your for your homeland, trying to preserve your hometown, home village, whatever it is. I mean, you know, are they so very different from from a young nineteen year British guy or American or, or whatever? And it's kind of hard to be really judgmental about them, and yet they've had to bottle this all up for decades and, and hold it within and not tell anyone and feel ashamed of it, whereas at least our veterans, for whatever horrors they saw, at least they can be proud of what they did. You know, there's a big difference there. You know, and I always think what a burden that must be and how awful it must have been and how, how, how what, what a kind of sort of, again, you know, I keep talking about this weight, this sort of lead weight, but what, what you know, an extra heavy lead weight for them to carry. Yeah, that's where I always feel the cultural difference when I'm... Uh, I remember the first time I saw a film about the Second World War in England when I was an exchange student. Oh, God, uh, I'm sorry. And it, no. <laughs> but uh, just even the music was so different from the music that would have been used in a German documentary about the same subject. I mean, it was heroic. It was, um, you know, there was a, a certain dark glamour to it. And, and in Germany, uh, there's always this doom you know, hanging over the, the whole, uh, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very different atmosphere. And, and here as well, I mean, when somebody talks, you know, I mean, friends posting photographs of their grandparents, uh, grandfathers in uniform, you know, on Veterans Day or whatever, I, I always feel uh, it's, it's always a very <laughs> awkward moment for me, because I just I could obviously, <laughs> and would also never want to do it. But um it's uh, and yeah, I mean, every country also has its own constructed narrative of the Second World War. I mean, I felt that a lot when my book came out in different countries, especially in Europe, that um, everybody comes to it with a particular narrative that was has been shaped over the decades, and it's not necessarily a um, you know a very complex narrative. It's a narrative that's taught in schools. And for instance, uh, in France, I mean, the narrative for, you know, for a long time was the narrative of the resistance, whereas there were actually concentration camps in the south of France that were led, uh, that, that were French run, uh, from which people were deported to Auschwitz. And that is something that that's just, you know, not been part of the of that narrative, that collective narrative there. I think it's changing now. Um, well, and, it, you know, we've cited a couple of times. There's, there's a, a very famous documentary series called "The Sorrow and the Pity" in English, um, that was made in I think I think it was sort of finished in about 1968 or something like that. It wasn't you couldn't see it in France until about 1990 or something like that. I mean, it was some ludicrously long period of period of time because it was just too incendiary, and and it was quite a deliberate policy by De Gaulle in the post-war years to actually just not go there, to kind of just not ask too many questions not point fingers at people who've been in the milice or you know who, who dobbed in jews in the, in the second world war because he felt that if that was the case the, cu the country would just simply never recover you know they'd never be able to kind of move on so a certain amount of quite a lot of brushing under the carpet had to go on and i think that's one of the reasons why there's very little narrative about the second world war actually in france itself i mean you know in terms of historians there there, there is narrative historians in france they literally don't exist and if they do, they're kind of looking at it from a sort of economic point of view, or there's memoirs about resistance types and so on. But but or, or, or it's incredibly academic. But there isn't a, you know, there's not a Max Hastings or a, a equivalent or or I don't know Rick Atkinson or something like that in in France. It, they just they just don't exist. It's it's amazing, really. And that's always the big question, what you just said about uh, France wouldn't have been able to move on if they had faced that part of their history earlier. But is that 
is that re- you know that's something that I'm I have been thinking about a lot. Why is it so different, uh, difficult for any country in the world to both face its ugly pasts, which you know every country has, um, and embrace one's culture? You know why is that so difficult for Americans, for instance, to look back at? Um, you know the uh, Native Americans and and the history of slavery and all the terrible things that were done and are continuing to be uh, to to being done, um, and at the same time express appreciation for other aspects of the culture. Uh, similarly, in Germany, we seem to be incapable of expressing our love, you know, for our culture. I mean, it's it's always only the people on the on the right end of the political spectrum who seem to be able to do that and i think that's the big uh there, there's a need for a transformation in the minds of the more liberal uh you know um group of of, of germans i think it's very important that we learn to celebrate our culture um because we can't leave it up to the extreme right to do that i think that's a well, dangerous we, thing. i think that is we, i think that's the well, most important thing you said all day and i, I it's the I, same I, argument I here totally We've, agree though i totally agree yeah. I, I don't think and again it's it's what we were talking about earlier on about about sort of before we press the record button about about binary binariness and 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 it's kind of one or the other you you know one's understanding of one's culture doesn't have to be binary it shouldn't be binary it 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 can be complex you can say you know you can you can look back at something with warts and all and you can say you know whether it, whether it's churchill whether it's oliver cromwell in ireland whatever it is you know you you can look at these things and say you know that was obviously not good but there's lots of good things too and and you know it is it has helped shape us into the into the nation we are now and and that's to be you know, celebrated in a way. I mean, you know, I, I don't, I don't think it has to be kind of one thing or the other. It really, really doesn't. And and I think it's really interesting that we're having this conversation now because right at this moment, you know, we're having exactly the same kind of discussions about our colonial, our colonial past and imperial past, and you know, Britain's involvement with the slave trade and all the rest of it. You know, all of which are incredibly pertinent and important discussions to be had. But but. Equally, you shouldn't get to a state where you can't have the conversation. You know, you, you've got to be able to talk about it. You've got to be able to kind of face it and confront it. And as you say, kind of, you know, deal with the richness of it as, you know, the good and the bad. So speaking of which, so Nora, are you an American now? So are you going to have to take on um, what it means to be an American, having having d- dealt with what it means to be a German? <laughs> Uh, yes, uh, I'm both American and German. Um, and, you know, the main reason for why I became an American was so I could vote. And I know already who I'm going to vote for this fall. Um, but uh, sadly, in New York State, that probably won't make a, a huge difference. Um, because, you know, most people probably will vote for the same person. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about also... Um, um, the uh, the issue around um, you know slavery and the history of slavery and the continuation of of race you know violence against people of color and uh, that's a subject that has always um, emotionally affected me deeply. Um, I live in a Caribbean neighborhood and um, I have a lot of uh, I teach full time in an illustration program at the Parsons School of Design in New York. So I have a lot of uh, a very diverse student body, a lot of uh, students working on these subjects. So it's it's been something that I've, I haven't been able to understand uh, for a long time living here as a German. Um, 
And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's a subject I want to continue to explore uh, in America in the future. But what's also interesting is that um, as much as we learned in Germany about the Holocaust and, and the Second World War, we hardly learned anything about German colonialism in school. And that also makes me wonder, you know, why didn't we? I mean, why were we so excessive in that one area and completely ignored the other? Um, is that a racial issue? Is it, you know, what what is that? And uh, a lot of a lot of the time, Germans' uh, arguments uh, argument is, uh, well, Germany only owned colonies for a short period of time. But I mean, that's not a valid argument because there was a lot of violence done during those few years and it doesn't matter how long it was it's part of our history and um so uh yeah i think i think the the whole current discussion that's happening all over the world is is also deeply uh, connected to our colonial histories and i think we need to do much more work and not only taking down statues and things like that but also um again thinking about the various ways in which colonialism has impacted us uh, you know personally too where the houses we live in why you know why do all the streets in london look so <laughs> beautiful and you know these grand buildings i mean i know uh, i know nothing about the financial history of of london but one one asks oneself you know where did the money come from to make it so grand and and i think we need to look at all of that and not just the history but also at how how does this history surround us now physically and you know in in all the you know all the other ways so because it inevitably does because history is the environment we live the present has to occupy in a sense uh yeah, I think this that's right. I mean, but the other thing, so Nora, I was, I was just thinking about. I mean, you were talking about about you know, no one, no one seems to, seems to kind of sort of, you, you're saying that you know, within Germany, there's not much celebration of, of of the good bits of German culture, of which there are many, and and it is extraordinary, really. And you think about the German contribution to, to music, to to art, to architecture, to philosophy. religion, to philosophy, to science, to engineering. I mean. <coughs> The list goes on and on and on. I mean, you know, you one goes to Heidelberg, and you know, you're you're conscious of this, this center of great learning, you know, and and you know, I sort of visited Martin Luther's house a couple of years ago, and I was sort of thinking, God, you know, what what a, what a, an amazing figure he was, what a courageous, a morally courageous figure he 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 was as well at his time. He, one of these people that just kind of helped advance culture and life, um, uh, you know. In a, in a giant leap, just in that one lifetime, and well, we're going to have to have an argument about that opinion at some point, James. But um, <laughs> but, but you know, the, but, but the point is, is, is whether you agree with it or not, it does yeah. take. It, it's moving things forward. That's, I suppose, yeah. the, the point I'm trying to make, really. And you know, it is. Um, it is odd that you don't do that. I mean, the 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 the, the kind of burden of the Third Reich seems to kind of sort of dominate everything. Yeah, at least in West Germany, I think. Um, and I'm guilty of that, too. I mean, I, I, I went to a classic music uh, middle and high school. So, you know, classical music was a big part of my life. And we played a lot of, uh, I played a lot of German composers. Uh, but I never thought of them as, um, I don't know, I never felt pride in uh, in in their accomplishments, you know, as as Germans. But what's funny to me is that the only time when I feel proud to be a German is, and it's even strange to say that, I don't think I've ever actually uh, said that phrase aloud, is when uh, Germany is acknowledging 
its past in a very thorough and open way. You know, when Angela Merkel does something, passes some law that, uh, you know, kind of um, refreshes the, uh, the, the notion that we need to keep on fighting for democracy and, and equal rights and so forth. That's the only time when I feel proud as a German is when I can see that we're continuing to face our past. And uh, I mean, I, I can't, I can't control it. It's just what it is. But I, I do think that Germans have to have to um, have to learn to to celebrate their culture and to express their love for it. Because yeah, we can't leave it to the extre extreme right. And that's also why I called my my book Heimat. I don't know if you know, but Heimat is a term that's very um, mm. conflicted to many Germans because I mean it, it means something like like homeland but it really defines the place where you feel uh, the, the place that you feel most um, um, formed you culturally and politically and um, and first my German publisher didn't want to name it that because they worried that it's it's a loaded term because the Nazis m misappropriated it to mean uh, you know a, a, a very um, um, they they made they defined it as a, a space that's only accessible to a certain kind of person, um, and so many Germans for de you know basically decades hadn't used the term at all, and then uh, while I was uh, just just about to publish the book in Germany, um, the uh, Alternative für Deutschland, the AFD, the right wing party, had just emerged. And um, that's when my German uh, publisher basically took a U-turn and said, now we have to call it Heimat because they're the only ones using this term right. in a positive way. And we can't let them do that. We have to, we as Germans who look back, um, you know, with, with a critical mindset, we also have to be able to express our appreciation for Heimat and for that term. Um, mm. And uh, that's why we called it Heimat. Well, it's a, uh, it's been it's brilliant a to talk to you about it. It's a fabulous, fabulous book. I, we I mean, um, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't mean to bring, uh, bring it back to <laughs> no, the I know you did. I know you did. The term is... Um, uh, brings us around nicely. Um, or it, belonging yes. in, 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 in English. In English but, yeah. Thank you so I mean, Heimat, much. of course, to English people also means the kind of the longest ever TV series in the history of TV. Right. Making. And it yeah. was but, debated even then, the title of that TV series was, uh, you know, I think even Edgar Reitz, who made it, uh, regretted using that term in the end. I don't know why. Really? I think That's so. I think I read that one. But I, I thought it was a profoundly moving book. I, I, I really, really loved it. I, I just thought it was fantastic. And yeah. um, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing to have. And it's, a, and it's such a lovely book to own. I mean, not not every book is a lovely book. To so I was in a hurry, a so I got you, it on the Kindle, and it's it. it's quite peculiar on the Kindle. Because <laughs> well, it's lovely. Well, you should get you should get yourself a hardback copy because it's a it's no, a no, really I'm going, lovely. I'm, I'm, I'm it's going a really to, lovely of course. thing. Yeah, it's a beautiful um, thing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. For, thank you so much for talking to us, Nora. And thank um, you um, for taking yeah, time out of your morning in New York City. Yes. You've you've the whole day ahead of you. Thanks again, and um, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, we've been talking to Nora Krug here on We Have Ways of Making You Chalk. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Thank Cheerio. you so much. Cheerio. Thanks, Nora. Cheers. Well, thank you for listening to our conversation with Nora Krug. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, and I just want to let you know that tonight, Tuesday the 23rd of June, um, the Chalk Valley History Show is going to be broadcast live on YouTube Premier at 7.30pm. Uh, you can access that by going onto the Chalk Valley History Festival website, CVHF.
cvhf.org.uk. That's cvhf.org.uk. And tonight we've got Saul David talking about the Crucible of Hell, Okinawa, and contributions from Tracy Chevalier, Ali Ansari, um, the Dorset Smuggler, and Susanna Lipscomb talking about why the Tudors matter. Many thanks. <laughs>